and welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with the A.B. Corcor Foundation for Mental Health. I'm Terry, the creator and co-host of this podcast. I've lived with depression most of my life, and I know how easy it can be to feel all alone in the experience. I'm not alone, and you aren't either. And I'm Dr. Anita Sands, a licensed clinical psychologist with a number of my own diagnoses, all of which bring a certain amount of anxiety and depression along with them. There is great power in shared experiences. We share our own as we engage in intimate and candid conversations with our weekly guests, exploring different perspectives on and experiences with depression. We keep it real because depression is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. Hello, Anita. Hi, Terry. This is the final episode of our month-long dive into the stigma of mental illness, and we're devoting this time because stigma, or the fear of being judged, shamed, or discriminated against, is one of the main reasons that people who need help and support to manage their mental health conditions don't feel as free and safe telling a friend or calling their doctor as they would if they had any so-called physical illness. Mm-hmm. Today, we're going to focus on doable ways we can all challenge and lessen stigma. Our guest is Juliette Kuhnley. She's a national board certified counselor and therapist whose work centers on encouraging us to be more genuinely connected to each other and to our deepest selves. In her words, society does not create a lot of room for our baggage, even though we desire to be seen and known. As the needle shifts on this stigma, We need to learn how to embrace the fact that mental health is an integral part of what makes us who we are. Here now is Juliet giving her voice to depression. I am very open about my own struggles and diagnoses and experience with therapy throughout my life. So, so I have had um, a generalized anxiety disorder and uh, diagnosis for a long time and always just sort of categorized everything as anxiety. And then just a few years ago, a new psychiatrist I started seeing said, um, I believe you have dysthymia or persistent depressive disorder. And it was very illuminating. Um, and because mm. I kind of like immediately like you you're right I've just always labeled things as anxiety and had gotten in this really bad habit of over identifying everything as anxiety um but this is where the diagnosis and a label was actually really helpful um because being able to say oh my gosh depression has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember helped me make sense of so much of those kind of sad, empty, lonely, um, muted feelings that I've had forever. Mm-hmm. Muted is such a good word. Let's talk about that for a minute, because people who don't have depression primarily, I think, believe that depression is sadness, that it's a heavy mm-hmm. sadness, and mm-hmm. so often it's nothing. That's right. Yes, yes. It's Sometimes there's a fog that I guess I would describe as more sadness, but yeah, this m- muted for me is... It can be anything like even when something, quote unquote, should be a high, (laughs) should be Mm -hmm. joyful, Mm -hmm. should be exciting. It's hard for me to access those um, in those times. So it's sort of it's dulled. Um, And then, yeah, other times, to your point, it is a little bit more like apathy, but still has a foggy 
tent. <laughs> Drawing from her personal lived experience, studies, and work, Juliet has made a list of tips for fighting stigma. They aren't big social justice movements, but rather the kinds of things all of us can do to erode long-held harmful beliefs about mental health and mental illness. The first is understanding the different types of stigmas. And so I, I pulled from research that, that talks about seven different types, everything from public stigma, which are all the ne- negative attitudes held by the general public about people with mental illness, to professional stigma, you know, where people will experience that in the workplace, um, to stigma by association, which is when, you know, the impact of stigma affects those who are just associated with a person with mental illness. So when we can understand the different types, we can see maybe how we are potentially perpetuating the stigma. We can recognize more easily when it's happening to us or to others so that we can do something about it. So we have to understand how it can show up before we can start shifting that. We, and society as a whole, also need to understand and tune into the language used around mental health. As Juliet puts it, diagnoses aren't meant to label, but rather they're meant to inform about the duration, severity, and frequency of symptoms so there can be an understanding approach for treatment. And so it's really important to pay attention to when we're saying things that are pathologizing or or inappropriately using diagnoses as adjectives. Um, I see that a lot on social media as an example. Uh, You know, people will say, like, don't be so OCD about that. Um, I can do it however I want. And, you know, saying things so casually like that, when you don't know if the person actually has an OCD diagnosis, right? you don't understand the clinical implications of this, it's, it's damaging. It, it perpetuates right. stigma. And you think that OCD means that you want everything on your desk in the right place. And right. if that's all it meant, the people with OCD would be doing cartwheels. Right. It is. Yeah. It just minimizes the mm-hmm. entire experience for people who are actually experiencing that clinical diagnosis, whatever it is. I, I hear it with, well, everything. And I, I give a lot of examples of that. Just, you know, PTSD, um, anorexia. I mean, people will just so flippantly, casually talk about mm-hmm. these things in a way that's um, harmful to people who actually experience these, these illnesses. And I think, I mean, I probably at least once a day, actually correct people when they say things mm-hmm. like commit suicide, for example. Oh, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think it's part of my duty to educate people around why we, we don't say that anymore. Um, mm-hmm. We say died mm-hmm. by suicide and kind of explaining why. And so, again, you know, to be the person that awkwardly speaks up to and says, like, mm-hmm. this is not what you say. This is what you say inset- instead. Right. Is a, is, it is awkward. Um, mm-hmm. But to me, it's, it's absolutely necessary if we're ever going to continue Um, erasing Mm -hmm. stigma. Juliet's third tip for ending stigma is the one we want to do a deeper dive into today, and that's to practice vulnerability and authenticity, as she did at the beginning of this episode when she shamelessly shared about her diagnoses. To me, that's about if we can't show up and own our stories, share our stories, kind of take those safe risks, appropriate risks of vulnerability and authenticity uh, then other people can't as well. Um, and so the more that we all can kind of show up and do that, um, the more permission that we, we all have overall. And that, mm-hmm. that's the kind of world I want to live in where yes. conversations like the one you and I are having now, this is incredibly vulnerable and authentic. 
these are the conversations where there's no, there's no room for stigma, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, where there's no pretending, suppressing, performing, acting. Uh, and yeah, so that's kind of the, the big takeaway for, for us as humans is the more that we can actually step into that, mm-hmm. um, then the more we can continue to access that and the more others will as well. As always, the decision to disclose any personal information about ourselves should be done only when it feels safe and appropriate. Yeah, and it's, you know, I want, I want people to know, like, you have, you have the agency to decide, you Mm -hmm. know, when you're willing to be that vulnerable. Um, It's, for me, it's about at least having it as an option for yourself. So maybe there are some people where that's just not, you're not going to feel emotionally safe enough to do that. But as long as there are other people in your life or other times when you're able to keep it real and be real. I had a guest once who said, we're all keeping the same secret from each other. I mean, mm-hmm. if I can't say to you, you know what, I can't come. I, 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 my depression's really bad. When you have depression too. But if we didn't share that, neither one of us would know that and we'd both be hiding it from each other. Vulnerability begets vulnerability, you right. know, with, with the right people. You know, it's, um, you, it, it kind of unlocks it for the dynamic or the relationship that you're in, um, which is mm-hmm. what's necessary. It's necessary in the recipe for deep connection. It is a circle. This is what therapists work with um, clients all the time is how can we practice dipping our toe into vulnerability if it's not you know, our go-to language. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. What does it look like? Because sometimes people think vulnerability is like bearing all. (laughs) Right, Um, right. And that's certainly one, it can be one part of it, but it does not have to look like that. So you get Mm -mm. to decide for yourself what dipping your toe in is, what um, sharing, you know, some little tidbit of something might be or asking a question differently or, you know, whatever it might be for you. So that question, what does it look like, is a good one. Juliet spells out 15 vulnerability practices, including some for a very familiar exchange. Mm-hmm. So this, my, this is around like the rote, um, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Like it's just this robotic mm-hmm. <laughs> programmed response we all have. Right. But what would it be like to sometimes, again, when you want to be able to pause and check in with yourself, how am I doing? And then answering mm-hmm. genuinely mm-hmm. today, not, not so great. Um, let me tell you what I need, or do you have a minute to listen? And again, mm-hmm. that vulnerability is going to be get vulnerability from the other person as well. And I think that, as you say, somebody just might want to hear fine. I'm fine. And they, they move on. They're not the person to have that conversation with anyway. I have thought that the word really could save a life, right? Because mm-hmm. if somebody says yes. fine and you look at them and say, really? Yeah. Because you, know, you seem a little different. You don't seem yourself. Yes. Now you really have opened that door. You know, you're saying like, I actually want to hear the real answer and I will make space to listen. So yes. I love that. But, but lots of times fine's fine because they don't want to hear it anyway and they're not who I'd want to tell. That's right. And, and again, mm-hmm. you have to have the agency to choose. And mm-hmm. maybe there's a time when you say to somebody like, do you want... Do you want the real answer or do you want the yes. <laughs> the quick yes. answer? Um, this is only something that you can really gauge, uh, but are you just going to stand and talk about the weather? Um, are you going to share, you know, something that's just a little more benign that you, that has no emotional charge to it? Or can you access something that's a little bit more layered? 
um, something, and you'll know sometimes it's just based on a feeling because vulnerability mm-hmm. is typically a feeling. There's a little bit of fear almost connected with it because vulnerability is a risk. But hey, mm-hmm. this is a person I trust. I do feel emotionally safe with. And so if I go to this next layer with them, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm willing to see what happens. I mean, it's our deepest desire as humans, even though for a lot of us, it's our deepest fear too, but our deepest desire is to be seen and known. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so in order to get that, (laughs) we have to figure out ways that feel safe to give that. Another vulnerability practice on Juliet's list is asking for what we need, which is a hard one for lots of us with depression. It sure is, especially because so much of the self-talk or core beliefs those of us with depression have. I'm a burden. I'm unworthy. um, I'm unlovable. Some of those Mm -hmm. beliefs can feel really true for for those of us who struggle with that. Um, So asking for help, asking for what you need can sometimes feel, again, just more burdensome. It's annoying. It's inconvenient. Um, So it's vulnerable to put some of those beliefs aside Mm-hmm. And to trust that um, just because I have needs, I'm not needy, and it's okay to express them. Um, it's okay to let someone else in. That's incredibly vulnerable. Just because I have needs doesn't mean I'm needy. That just, wow. That's a really good one. Yeah, and I, I, I struggle with that sometimes, too. I, I get it sort of, you know, intellectually. And, yes, um, yes. Overall. Um, but there are times when I am in my depression and anxiety, where that does not feel true. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a practice. I mean, that's also what I like to remind clients. It's, it's, it's a practice to, you know, you know, it doesn't have to feel true for you to still take action steps towards, towards it. Well, let's talk about that more. What else doesn't need to feel true, but, and we can do it anyway? Ooh, yeah. Um, especially with depression, that, again, can in the fog or in the heaviness can feed us a lot of lies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yep. I'm the only one that feels like this. No one cares. It's never going to go away. I'm not good at this thing, whatever it is. There's a lot of kind of like faking it till you make it quote unquote um, in depression, because when we can still take those action steps, practice, like asking for help, doing the vulnerable mm-hmm. thing, um, taking a shower, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever it is, your your brain will catch up. So mm-hmm. even though it doesn't believe these things, if you keep showing it that effort and those and that care and doing the activities of daily living, your brain will catch up. Um, and so it may not feel true, but you're still showing it um, that it's worthy and deserving of those things. Um, and that can only minimize those beliefs over time. In all the times that I have talked to people about not providing themselves good nutrition, I shouldn't say themselves, ourselves, um, Mm -hmm. not getting out of bed, not taking the shower, I'm not sure I've ever thought of doing it because we deserve it. We deserve the nutrition. We deserve to feel good and clean. We deserve to Mm -hmm. move as opposed to you should so Mm -hmm. that you can feel better and get back to work. Well, and shoulding ourselves never works. Mm -hmm. But it, again, the lies that depression can feed us is that we aren't worthy. Right. Um, so I think it's in my clarity, in my moments of clarity and being able to step into my self-worth, I know that that I am deserving of that. 
and that acts of self-care are a birthright for, for me, mm-hmm. just as they are for every one of you. And so going through those action steps, even if we don't believe it, can help us come back around to understanding that it's true. Other ways Juliet says we can practice vulnerability and authenticity include setting appropriate boundaries, owning and acknowledging out loud when something is hard or stressful, and saying no to something that doesn't align or we don't have time for. This is a great act of self-care and one that does not get talked about enough. But yes, it's because we want to over-explain Um, Even going back to our point earlier of, I got to tell you why I'm saying no to the invitation you gave me. Like, guess what? I actually don't. (laughs) Sometimes I might want to tell you it's because of my depression, sometimes make up an excuse. But frankly, I should just be able to say no. Um, No is a complete sentence. Um, But that's that's vulnerable for us because we, we do feel like we have to give reasons and explanations and make it make sense to the other person and um, and make sure that it, it it's kind of a valid no. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is being able to just check in with yourself and realize like if I'm at capacity today or this is going to be depleting or, you know, whatever the reason is, um, I get to just say no and leave it at that. Juliet says, while all those things can feel intimidating at first, when practiced regularly, they can lead to huge improvements in not just how we view our own mental health struggles, but how we help those we're connected to and love. And they can also help to move the needle on stigma. So Terry, there were three things that really stood out to me that Julia uh, mentioned in this interview. One that I know we've said before is that no is a complete sentence and that ability to say no when you need to instead of saying yes uh, for your own Mm self-care. The other, which I know you reacted to in the interview, was this idea that having needs does not make you needy. Yeah. And how important that is as a concept. And then the final thing that I think is really important and probably one of the things that people need to remember in their daily lives in terms of self-care is when she said that if you keep showing up and doing the good things for yourself, your brain will eventually catch up. Yes. And I think that that is so critically important because our brain is such a simple computer sometimes. And it just gets this idea that I must be worthy of good things in order to give myself good things, in order to take care of myself. So if I don't feel worthy, then I'm not allowed to have those things. It's just a Mm -hmm. a very logical this or that, all or nothing kind of way of looking at it. And so we really do undergo what, um, what psychologists call cognitive dissonance if we actually start doing things that are really good for us or giving ourselves good things when we don't feel worthy, it's like the brain just goes, wait a minute, something's wrong here. And it has to resolve it. It's so dissonant. It has to make this right. If I'm doing good things for myself, it can only mean that I must be worthy hmm. of those good things. The brain has to, has to make it right. And so that's actually that process of change. And this is why we tell people, even if you don't feel you deserve it, even if you feel like you're not worthy, Give yourself the good things. Do those good things for yourself. The brain will eventually catch up. 
that's that process of change. And that's why affirmations work. But that's also why, you know, getting up and doing the things that that you would recommend anybody that you love, you know, deserves to have will eventually make you feel like you are worthy. It's a really cool process of change. Mm-hmm. And we know how it works in reverse. Mm-hmm. And the longer you lay there and the longer you think, mm-hmm. you know, all those things we think, it just makes it so much harder to get out of it because you are constantly reinforcing it by not showering, not getting out of bed, not tidying up a little bit to, mm-hmm. to the extent you're able. Right. Giving your brain all of the evidence that you must not be a worthy or good person right. because I'm not doing those things. Right. So, yeah. It does feed it. It was very interesting. Juliet was also speaking about the language and how using better language, using correct mm-hmm. language, using non-stigmatizing language is a step in this. And the big one, of course, is that we no longer say commit suicide because suicide used to be crime. It's not. And we don't need to add that layer of everything, including shame on the survivors. Mm-hmm. So we say died by suicide. We can say killed themselves, took their own lives. Those are okay. It's the word mm-hmm. commit that is um, objectionable. Uh, Also, the one that I hear a lot, and I think is worth pointing out, is sort of differentiating between that someone has a mental health condition versus is. Because in a zillion years, I have, not that I've been alive a zillion years, but it feels like it some days, I've never heard anybody say, she's cancer, he's diabetes, right? But you say, Mm -hmm. oh, he's bipolar, she's bipolar. You hear that Mm -hmm. all the time. And even Mm -hmm. from people Mm -hmm. who are really, you know, aware and uh, and supportive of, say, the person in it's, their life. It is, it's ha- it's habit, but that can be changed. That needs to be it changed. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So, we just say has, right? Mm-hmm. Has, lives with, battles, whatever verb you want to mm-hmm. use other than is, because otherwise we're being defined mm-hmm. by our diagnosis. Um, so, that was one point. And then there were just the, the list of things in the book, in Juliet's book, which again is called Who You Calling Crazy? And we focused on the fourth chapter, which was How Do We End Stigma? But she had more on the list of, what did she call them? Practicing vulnerability Mm -hmm. and authenticity. And I sort of pulled out a couple for the interview. But in addition, owning and acknowledging out loud when something is hard or stressful, taking risks that may lead to rejection, talking about mistakes you've made, and attempting something new that you might not be great at, like going outside of your comfort zone. And those are not the kind of activities that are normally on a list to fight stigma. Mm-hmm. I kind of liked learning those subtle shifts that are all toward mental wellness. Mm-hmm. And and the focus being on vulnerability, authenticity, mm-hmm. transparency, and again, this whole idea of let's make it safe to be honest and mm-hmm. real about what's going on. And to your first point with no meaning no, um, part of my discussion with, with Juliet that I did not include in the final cut was, say, you know, I said, so I should could say, um, no, I can't. I know we made plans, but I can't come out because my depression's bad or because I haven't slept in days. And she said, yes, you can. And it would be good if you felt safe enough to say that. You mm-hmm. also don't have to. You don't owe anybody that explanation. So, if it's someone with whom you have that level of rapport, you can say, nope, it's just, I'm just there. I'm fine. I'm safe, but I'm not social. But to anyone else who it's not safe with, you can just say, yeah, no, I can't do that anymore. So, that was a good reminder for me. That's a very, that's a very good reminder. It's, it's, It's not fair 
to say yes when you're the person who has to live with the consequences of doing mm-hmm. that if they would be negative to you so i i i love that no is a is a complete answer you don't deserve the ex you know to explain yourself um you're the person who has to live with your choice of saying yes or no yep. you get to make the decision yep. love it yeah. So we have wrapped up our month-long stigma dive. If anybody's got any comments to make or any examples of how stigma has affected your life, there is that record button on givingvoicetodepression.com, and you can leave us a comment about this series or anything else you want to share with us. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding helps you better articulate and reflect on your own experience with depression or better understand how to support someone else who is struggling. If this episode has been of comfort or value to you, know that there are hundreds of others like it in our archive, which you can easily find at our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up, even if it's hard. If someone else is struggling, take the time to listen. Listen.